Welcome back. This is your host. You're listening to The Mark Metry Show. Today, I've got on Dr. Nicole LaPera. You may know her from Instagram, The Holistic Psychologist. She is a best-selling author. She is a clinical psychologist. She also has a great podcast uh, called the 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 Sound Healer Soundboard or, or some Self Healer Soundboard. I think I got it right. Um, I listen to it all the time. They do like these great simulations that like really show you like a, a clear example of what it is that sh- the point that she's trying to convey. Personally, I know Nicole since uh, 2018. Was a big fan of her posts. Had her on my podcast. Um, I wrote a book called Screw Being Shy. She was kind enough to. Um, you know, give me some kind of quote that's very kind. And, uh, and ever since I've seen her career grow and and not just her career, but really seeing her like champion this entire movement of like, you can heal yourself. There are so many other tools and, and ways that a lot of us don't know that we weren't taught ways to, you know, really heal yourself, your mind, your psychology, your, your health in general. So it's been amazing to see that, to see your growth. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nicole. Of course. Thank you, Mark. I mean, even hearing how early on as we were kind of musing before we we hit record, um, what a journey it's been. And I really, truly appreciate your continued support um, and especially your support so early on in my journey. And I'm honored to be here in presence with you today. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, one thing for me that uh, I think really was just interesting for myself personally when I came across your work early on um, was, you know, you started to talk about nutrition from really a totally different way. And I think now like the term is coined like nutritional psychiatry, but really you're talking about this bigger idea of not just like, oh yeah, you know, exercise and eat healthy is something that's just sort of generally brushed off to like be a healthy thing that can help you on your journey. But you were really breaking it down and saying like, hey, you know, like your brain a lot of the times like requires these different vitamins and these different uh, minerals and nutrients that can be found in food. And obviously it depends on the person, but if you're not consuming those things, um, that may impact your mental health in some way. So I'm just curious to ask you like, um, how has like the role of, of nutrition sort of uh, emerged like in your life, through your personal life, and even like in your, in your work with psychology? Yeah. So let me kind of start before nutrition, BN, if you will, before it became foundational, um, ultimately, which what is has become Mark for me. Um, nutrition, the body as a whole, if we really want to group nutrition, how we physically care for our physical self was absent um, from any of my clinical training, from any of my training in clinical psychology, from any idea that it had any impact on, like you're saying, our mental wellness, our emotional wellness. And what I had come to realize once I was out of school and really seeing, and my first book, How to Do the Work, really touches on this, really seeing the stuckness that so many humans were experiencing, unable to really create and maintain substantial change in their life. Um, I set out on a journey first to, because I was one of those stuck individuals myself, to understand, well, what is going on? Why are we so stuck in the ways that we're stuck? And as I began that journey of exploration, I met the human body. And this might sound really simplistic or silly to even say, but really understanding and why do we care about the human body? We care about the human body. You referenced a very major organ, which is our brain, our nervous system in particular. And the way we care through our body, through things like nutrition, through sleep or rest or movement, these are really foundational aspects that we need as humans to be well. 
Um, and the large majority of us as adults aren't caring, never were taught the importance of our physical body or for different reasons in our earliest environments are unable, and some of it in, is in terms of access to resources, are unable mm -hmm. to care for our physical bodies in the way that our nervous system needs us to. Because the reality of our nervous system is it runs our ship, um, not only in terms of us navigating the world in a physical body, um, it really impacts our emotional world and how we're showing up and expressing ourselves in our relationships. So once I discovered that the human body was incredibly important, um, I sought out in my own healing and now I, you know, offer the resources and tools for others to really begin to make those small daily changes to change the way that we're fully caring for our physical self with nutrition um, being such an important part of it and really understanding the impact that the choices that we're making around the foods that we're eating and the problematic nature of many of the foods that most of us have access to and how mm. that then is translating to our our emotional wellness or our lack thereof. And for me, until this day, you'll probably hear me cite, like I just said, it's one of the most foundational and consistent tools I continue to come back to and I integrate into my day, really simply making sure I'm caring for my physical body through nutrition as one of those pillars. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's so, so important and, and obviously it depends on the person and that person's upbringing. But I know for me, you know, like I, I grew up poor, uh, you know, eating muffins and cookies <laughs> for mm -hmm. breakfast and then going mm -hmm. to school and, and eating like fried chicken tenders and French fries and chocolate milk. Um, and going home and kind of it being more or less the same. And a lot of the times like we're taught that, oh, you know, if you eat too much food, then you'll gain weight, you know, and no one wants to be large. And so a lot of the times I feel like a lot of us look at it from that perspective when in reality, like I think a lot of the times if you are living a life where you've never really eaten healthy, you've never really sort of explored like different healthy habits, especially with food. A lot of the times, like what I find like the, the importance of nutrition to be is like, you know, let's say like you get an idea, like you're just like going throughout your day or like you're driving or you're at your job and you get an idea. And like, let's say this is an idea that your subconscious, your mind is trying to give you that could potentially change your life. Maybe it's like, hey, you know, I really should, I don't know, start going for runs or like, hey, you know what? There's like this book that's been shit that's been sitting on my counter for like a year. I haven't even read it. Let me go read it, right? But then I think what happens is, you know, you get home, you're tired, and you may not have the energy to like execute on that idea. And I find that like nutrition is a lot of the times like it makes things easier because it gives you that fuel, it makes you a little less tired, it gives you that energy. You're able to focus a little bit more. And I find that the more energy that your like natural biology, your system has, the more potential opportunities, I would say that you get to see your real self come out that's not burdened by, you know, inflammation, neuroinflammation, you know. And so I think food is especially so important, um, you know, now more than ever, you know, and, and especially with like marketing and, and companies. Like I was reading the study the other day that said, um, you know, a lot of like the huge kind of like fast food companies, they like specifically market their products to poor people because they know that they have the highest likelihood of actually consuming those things. And so when you look at it from like a, bio, a biochemical level at a societal level, it's like really one of the most important things I think that, um, you know, so many people don't think about or so many people are incentivized 
by economics to not talk about it. And so it's it's just mind blowing to me and, and like getting in the space more and and like being a nutrition coach, it's um it's so important, like just the intersection between nutrition and, and psychology, really. <laughs> um, I again, one hundred percent. And while you know, in my childhood, um, in terms of financial, all of our financial needs were more or less met. However, you know, things were tight enough that my mom was very much, you know, a couponer and a and a sales. You know, she would she would buy products and usually canned items when sales would happen, and then store them in our pantry for a later time. Have my mom and dad having grown up really post depression era, so finances mm-hmm. and the insecurity around it being top of mind. And unfortunately, what you're speaking of, the access that most people with lower socioeconomic neighborhoods and food deserts, the food they're being exposed to, the coupon, the sales, aren't foods that are high in nutritional value. So to speak to your point in terms of we need nutrients to give our body energy to have these ideas. However, something else is really more important. If we're not consistently making sure our body is getting what it needs in terms of nutrition, also in terms of sleep and, you know, rest and, you know, just movement of our muscles, even if we can't, mm. if we're not fully physically able to even just, you know, moving and gently moving what we can um, ultimately, in addition to, you know, having the energy when we're not having our needs met, I'm really going to simplify this. Our, our body is in survival mode. Our nervous system mm. is going to prioritize physical survival. So things like ideas, creativity, imagination, energy, like you're saying, to pursue or to pick up this book and entertain something new or live in an imaginative world, that's not a priority. And the large majority of us, and I know I was before I began my own healing journey, we're living in that survival mode still. Even if our environments into adulthood do allow us access to resources, our nervous system is still locked in that state where we will prioritize immediate survival. So in addition to not having energy, we don't have access. I like to think about neuroscience and the human Mm. body. We don't have access to that part of our brain that allows us that ability to be imaginative and creative and forward thinking or even like create the future that's different. We will just kind of recycle where we're at from that survival place. Wow. That's very, very well said. And, uh, it's it's so crazy to me like um you know how if someone is like if someone's depressed or if someone like you know has like lifelong anxiety and then you ask them like oh what are you eating or like have you looked at nutrition a lot of times they're like wait like what what are you talking about like what is what is what i put in my mouth have anything to do with this i have more important things to to worry about you know and so it's almost like one of those things where it's not i mean it is common sense but a lot of us maybe not have been led to that sort of idea where, you know, our mind and our body and really every part of our part of our body really is connected, you know? And I think so many of us have been taught to, uh, you know, just like live in like our minds only. Like we've, I think you've talked about this where like we've been taught to like live cerebrally where yes. you're like just living in your, in your head and uh, you know, anything that's sort of like active or physical, that's just like a separate thing. It has nothing to do with like your mind and your problems in life, you know? And so I really hope that, you know, like the next like five years, 10 years, like more people are awakened to this aspect, because I think that if our world can become more, you know, nutritious, if we, if we, if everyone has access to more nutrient dense foods, I genuinely believe that like, it's going to help facilitate like every part 
of like this this entire like healing revolution that's happening and and just our consciousness in general you know i think it's like a huge huge link um you know that's very it's very interesting and it's, i think also now too like it's becoming uh, i don't know if the right word is like uh politicized but you know a lot of the times when you talk about like nutrition um there's so many people in different like diet camps you know different people who like believe in different diets um and then a lot of the times too there's there's people who have different uh, beliefs that say like oh you know processed food is all bad there's other people who say oh processed food actually isn't that bad and it has to do with your calories you know and so like there's so much like nuance that's that's happening there's so many groups there's so many people talking about this um that i hope that like people don't lose the meaning because i think it's like really important and i'm curious to get your thoughts on this but like i think it's really important to like see something on instagram for example and, um, and, you know, take action on it, you know, not necessarily be lost in like, oh, you know, what is the exact perfect methodology that I need to go that's 100% correct. And someone will like spend a lot of time researching and, and like procrastinating and, and not actually doing anything, but making themselves more confused in the process. And like, we know that if people are more confused, they'd rather just like do what they've always done then maybe like learn a new path, you know? And I think that's like a huge aspect of just like social media and like learning and using it as like a source of education in general, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, us as humans, as a species, we will always gravitate to that familiar, even if the familiar has with it a bunch of outcomes that, you know, we've lived and would like to avoid that familiar is ultimately our safety. And I want to go back to something mm. really profound um, that you said when you were sharing which was, you know, we're cerebral, cerebral beings. And my first book, you know, talks how to do the work, talks a lot about, you know, all of the different things that we think we are living in this head and this mind with these beliefs that we've repeated over time. And I had a really profound moment um, in my, my global membership, the Self Healer Circle. We just opened up enrollment and we had a first live event and I was talking along the lines of you are not the thoughts in your head. And so many members were having this profound realization because for so long, they believed themselves to be the thoughts in our head. They looked mm. to, right, our mind. So many of us look to our mind for guidance. And actually one member asked a very astute question, which was, well, how do I make decisions then if I'm not you know, my logical thinking mind. And again, here we cue in the body, right? Which is this mm -hmm. intuition, this guidance that so many of this roadmap, right? This director that so many of us are looking for, this definition of even who we are isn't going to be found in the thoughts that we're repeating in our, in our conditioned mind. In mm -hmm. my opinion, when we're talking about intuition, we're actually talking about dropping in to that, that body, into that self. And so even like to answer your question, when we're talking about actioning or making decisions and figuring out which decisions are best for us in terms of, say, nutrition for this conversation, right, it really means reconnecting with our individual body. So much so, mm. I believe the body to be foundational that in my new workbook, How to Meet Yourself, I break it up into three sections, body, mind, and then soul or authentic self. And mm. we're all seeking, I think most people that will pick up the workbook or looking for section three, right? How do I discover who I am? And how do I know when my intuition is guiding me or where it's guiding me? 
you get to that space when first we build that foundational reconnection with our body, which then includes mm -hmm. hearing new ideas from social media and maybe what worked for you, Mark, nutritionally. And maybe I'm going to ask Sally what worked for her. And mm -hmm. I could use both of them for guidance. But what would really be valuable is to tune in to see what works for me, right? And make the decision mm -hmm. that Mark made and drop in and see how I feel. You know what? Oh, this doesn't feel good to me. Maybe I'll try what Sally did because ultimately, right. and this is why I'm so impassioned about the, even the concept of self-healing, it doesn't mean healing in absence of other people and absence of their suggestions or support. That's mm. part of our journey. But at some point, most of us have learned to prioritize other people, our friends, experts, loved ones, what our culture thinks is best for us. And we've diminished ourselves. So on in the workbook, I offer mm -hmm. a journey of reconnecting with that physical body so that as we then progress through section two and then get to meet our authentic self in section three, we're dropped in and we can then begin to attune to the signals that are coming from our body. Because again, I assure anyone listening, mm -hmm. you're not the thoughts in your head. Those are repetitive, conditioned you know, byproducts of your very real experience and they're coloring your very real emotions and your very real reactions. So not to minimize it, but they're not who you are. And we get to discover not by bypassing the body, but by reconnecting and learning how to tune into and meet our body's needs so that we can begin to hear from that intuitive, deeper place. Mm. That was so well said. And and I think for me, like one of the ways that I think about it is, you know, like your thoughts are um, you know, like your thoughts are almost like a script, you know? So like if you take mm -hmm. a movie, right. And like, you see like, Oh, this actor is going to say this here. And this actor is going to say that here. I look at our thoughts like the same way, you know? So like every day you wake up and your mind has like this clock where it's like, okay, anxious thought, uh, maybe an ego based thought, uh, uh, Oh, I'm hungry or, Oh, I I'm tired or, or this, 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 and that. And I think what's really interesting about what you're talking about, about, like how you even view your concept of yourself, I think has a lot to do with it, where like your thoughts will come out every day. And then, you know, tomorrow you have almost the same thoughts. The day after you have almost the same thoughts, regardless of your external environment. And then what happens is, you know, 10 years pass by. And if you were like in whatever kind of an environment that made you trigger like a certain thought or a certain emotion, then I think a lot of the times like we think of ourselves or like we think of parts of our personality as our thoughts when not really like personally for me, like I grew up with social anxiety, right? And I always just thought, oh, I'm just like the shy person. I have no confidence because people are better than me. I I guess I'm just not as smart as people or I guess I just can't do or, or put in hard work like other people can. And then as like I've peeled the layers of that, I realized that's, that's, that's not who I am at all. You know, this is just like a sort of conditioning that I've taken and then sort of like tried to describe myself really based on like trauma responses or really yes. based on how my brain was operating. So I'm curious to ask you, like, how do you look at sort of someone constructing like their sense of self? Um, and like, how can they start to like unwind that or get like a better awareness around who they actually are? if that makes sense. Absolutely. I even love, Mark, that you're using the word, that, that, that turn of phrase, construct it your sense of self, because that's mm. in reality what is happening, right? We become though so fused with those habitual thoughts followed by the habitual feelings that in our body and usually the habitual ways we cope with those feelings or all of our emotions in general. And we, be, we wear that as us because for most of us, 
And the reason why I was so well, you know, kind of interested in your, your book about shyness was because I too was such an extremely, my dad actually just a couple of weeks ago reminded, allowed me of how painfully shy I was as a child to the extent that I would hide mm. from strangers on the street behind my mom's leg. Now, was that who I was? I continued with that shyness probably up until later high school years as I entered into college. Was that who I was or was that a byproduct? And in my opinion, anxiety itself is a byproduct of our environment, or at least our environment plays a large function, nutritional environment included, in mm. terms of our anxiety. Social anxiety, as far as I see it, is a form of, like you're saying, a trauma reaction. It's a hypervigilance to the world around me that's aimed at something, usually aimed at keeping me safe. So for me, while your experience, I'm sure, was different in the factors um, that contributed to us different. For me, um, I lived in a home where there was a lot of looming fear. Um, there was a lot of fear of our health, health-related issues. I lived in a city. I grew up in Philadelphia. There was a lot of fear of crime that was very real and active in my neighborhood. There was a lot of fear. Um, so understandably, me hiding behind my mom's leg was an embodiment of that fear. Why would I show myself to the stranger in the world around me when that stranger is someone to fear because that was all of right that messaging. So ultimately, we age then and we're so used to these habits. I talk about this concept in the new workbook of a habit self that we become fused and we make meaning and then we do start to proclaim, I'm socially anxious. I'm I'm whatever it is. I'm this kind of, I'm a depressed person. I'm a that person. And this is who I am. And until we can create um, so ultimately, right, the way out of this is first becoming conscious of how are you defining yourself, right? What are your habitual ways of being that have helped you create this idea of who you were? And I do get asked often, do you have to know the details of that early environment, of what exactly happened? And my response, being someone who really lacks memories of my childhood is, no, because your habits that you're probably embodying day in and day out will be a reflection of that mm -hmm. environment. So when we become, as always, I will always cite the first step of change is becoming conscious to where you are now, to the habits. And again, the workbook will take you through what are the habits? How do I habitually care for my physical body? What are some beliefs mm -hmm. that I may even have wrapped up around bodies in general, my body? deeper still emotions. How do I tend to my emotional world? Do I have space to express my emotions? Um, and then ultimately, when I see those habitual ways of being, then I could create space to become more conscious with the choices that I'm making in any or all of those areas. But the reality mm -hmm. of it is most of us as adults, we just think that's who we are and complicate it further by the fact that we see such similar patterns in our parents, right? And then we start to say, mm -hmm. well, of course I'm like this. My parents are like this genetically. This is just who I am. And so my hope with all of the work that I put out in the world is just for people to begin to question that narrative, to maybe have a bit of space opened up for the possibility that that might be how you've been, but it might not be who you are. Mm, absolutely. And, and you know, I, for me, at least when you go on this journey, you start to realize that it's it's less about 
you know, remembering who you are or like trying to act in a certain way versus actually just creating life in every moment and choosing new new choices. And 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 that's really what I think um it comes down to. And and you know, I just want to say too, you know, I really love things like, for example, like what you've created with your workbook, because I think again, it, it's like so easy in today's age to like watch this on YouTube or a podcast or even read a book. And all, of course, all that stuff is helpful, but to sit down and like write and to think about your life and to do the work, like it's amazing. So I'm so glad you created that tool. One thing I want to talk about that you just mentioned is like uh, you not really remembering some of your childhood. And I was literally just telling someone today, I was like, listen, I feel like I honestly don't remember what happened between ages like 10 until 18 or like there's maybe little little you know drops or some memories but for the most part not really and i've heard you talk about this before and i i think this is really important to talk about like what are your what are your thoughts on someone where they can't really remember parts of their life or parts of their childhood like what what is that what's happening yeah for for a very long time and i speak about this readily now because mark for a very long time having known and it coming to my awareness you know around high school age when I started to have, you know, regular friendships and because part of when I was shy, I didn't really have many, you know, close friends. So as I, you know, began kind of socially connecting with other people, it was brought to my attention just, you know, in general speak of childhood and how things were that I I didn't, I had big gaps. I didn't have the same stories to share with my friends so much so that it actually became a a point of teasing um, for me in my later high school years of like, oh, Nicole, because what would happen then is I would have experiences with these friends and months would go by, weeks would go by and they would reference, you know, that time when, and I blank face stare, no idea. Um, and so at that point, I think as often is the case up until then, I didn't necessarily think anything of it um, because we didn't, weren't a family that reminisced because lo and behold, none of us really had very many memories. So it wasn't until I had that experience of the opposite of people remembering the childhood. And what happened for me is I would laugh at their jokes. Oh, ha ha ha. Nicole doesn't remember. So funny. Internally, though, I, I began to wonder what's what's wrong with me? Why don't I? And when I flash forward several years, several years, and now I'm in a clinical psychology program, and I start to be taught that sometimes people don't remember because they suffer, you know, a, a, a very big traumatic event and your, your mind shuts you down, right, as a protection from this traumatic event. So I even tried on for size, like, could I have had, you know, some sexual abuse, some physics, like any type of, because this is, again, at the time I was taught, that's what trauma is. These big events that happen to you, sexual abuse, you know, physical neglect, incarcerated parents. And I'm going down this checklist mark and I'm like, no, I don't think so. Like, mm, no, it's not really feeling like it's right. And I carried a lot of shame around this lack of memory until flash forward several more years, I really began to understand the body and the nervous system, and in particular, the the impactful role um, that one of our main stress hormones, cortisol, plays on the part of our brain that stores or helps play a role in our memory, which is our hippocampus. And really simply, again, as I often do, I like to simplify some of this neuroscience, when cortisol or stress goes up, our ability to remember goes down. So now, right, I had a, I had the ability to factor myself in. I didn't have that one big stressful moment, but what I was coming to the awareness I did have, in my opinion, since I was in utero developing in my mom's stomach where 
it just came to my attention when my mom actually passed last year. One of the stories shared um, at her funeral was my aunt, very in a well, well-intentioned, well-meaning way, was joking because my mom found out she was pregnant with me when she was 42. 15 years after having my sister, 18 years after my having my brother, long story short, she wasn't anticipating that the morning sickness that she was beginning to suffer was pregnancy at all, not even in her wildest imaginations. And she actually thought it was stomach cancer, very in line with her threat, you know, her health related anxiety. So now I'm being told that when I was beginning my development, my mom was actually thinking that she could have, that she was developing cancer, right? And could ultimately die. So I imagine her cortisol was through the roof. So I really define my stress beginning for me, and we all have different experiences, in my mom's, for in my first environment, which was in my mother and her stress. So now I'm born into the world, like I was sharing earlier, there's stress around the corner. There's my car could be stolen, my house could be broken into, right? My sister could die of a, of a chronic illness, stress, stress, stress. So more cortisol, which is released when we're in cons- any type of stress. And if it's consistent, chances are we have very high levels of cortisol and that's going to then affect our ability to form those memories. So I went about life and I never was able to maintain the memory to recall it um, at a later time. That's the distinction there being, um, I had a conversation with Gabor Mate, who I think was really, really helpful. I saw that. that was awesome. Our body remembered, right? So I remembered in my way of being, but I couldn't recollect and share the story in that, in that recall-based way. And again, it comes down to stress and cortisol. So like you, a lot of us growing up in stressful environments do then experience our memory as impacted. Mm, that's so interesting. And I find, I find like what I've learned on my journey is, you know, if you are like self-inquisitive, if you're doing the work, if you're trying to release your body and your mind of stress, what I find is like, sometimes I'll just like randomly remember things. I'm like, Oh wait, actually. Yeah. Like at that time on the butt, like all these, all these random things in random moments will kind of just kind of come in like, Oh yeah. And it's sort of like me connecting a piece to the puzzle. Um, you know, so it's, it's almost like kind of a game (laughs) from that perspective of like finding out about your past. Um, it's very, very interesting. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that you said, that's really, really interesting is like, you were talking about, Oh, what if my, sister gets this illness? What if this person breaks into my car? What if this? And I think what's really interesting is like, as we're having these thoughts, our brain is also having like a neurochemical reaction. It's increasing cortisol, you know? And I think that's like a big incentive for, I think a lot of people to try to like take all this stuff seriously. Because a lot of the times when we're just like sort of worrying or we're just thinking, we're just like, oh, we're just like thinking, we're lost in our head, doesn't really have to do anything, we're just like stuck in our bubble. But like, no, your brain, your nervous system is like creating these chemicals. It's creating like this whole chain reaction. And like we know that obviously like chronic stress is a big, big factor in like literally every single illness, you know? And so it's one of those things where for me, I'm always like incentivized to be like, Mark, if I just think about this, if I go down the route that like my mind wants to take me down, I'm not doing anybody any favors. I'm not going to think about the situation clearer. I'm just going to get more stressed out about it. My health, like my brain, my neurochemistry uh, is going to have some negative consequences, you know? And so that for me is like always like an incentive that I try to take to like try to rationalize to my mind to not go down like that rabbit hole. Um, You know, I'm curious to ask you since, because like I I know a few people who have faced uh, this problem 
is like what you said about kind of like health related anxiety. Um, I don't know if the right word is being called like a hypochondriac, um, but not like in a, in a negative way, just like the term. Um, but this like health related anxiety where, you know, a lot of us and it's hard to right? like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm always obviously since I'm like a nutrition coach, I'm always like trying to stay up to date. Like there's always these things like, oh, you know, there's a. Uh, there's like glyphosate, this pesticide that's in all of our food, uh, you know, like um, the the climate change is like making our food more toxic. Like, th- like there's a thousand things that someone could be worried about for their health. I think some of that is legitimate. Like I think a lot of it is partly legitimate, you know? So like I'm curious to ask you, like, I don't know if you've ever faced it or, or like what your advice, if anything, would be to people who like struggle around anxiety with their health. Because this has come across... Um, just like in my experience, talking to a lot of people about like health and, and eating healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And so just as much as you were very beautifully describing the different ways that our thoughts um, impact our body, right? So if you sit there long enough and ruminate over something stressful, you will increase the cortisol in your body and you will you know, create that stress response in your body just as much as it kind of goes downstream a stressed out body or a body that is stuck in fight or flight or will then create those thoughts in our mind because our mind and body are in constant bi-directional communication. It just doesn't work that our thoughts impact our body, our body impacts our mind. And this is why, and I share this because I've lived this phenomenon my whole life. All I want, I'm, I used to jo- I joke still, and I'm a hippie at heart. I just want peace, love, freedom, man, you know, find my hippie hammock in the sky. I'm good. You know, I just want to relax and chill. However, lo and behold, what I would discover would happen in a moment where I actually could chill, there was nothing around, right, to stress me out, I would start to run in my head with stressful thoughts. It's kind of, it was inevitable what would happen. I would sit there and my thoughts would become stressful and then my body would kind of match that. And I couldn't understand why. And I now have clarity. The reason why is because I wasn't sitting in my utopian hippie hammock or on my couch, wherever I was, in a calm body, in a body in the parasympathetic nervous system of rest and digest where I can feel peaceful, my body was still so locked in fight or flight that the only thing to to make sense so that now my mind is involved, as it always is, trying to make sense of what's happening, not only in our environment, but how my body is responding to my environment, it had no, 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 no other option but to find the stressful narrative for what was happening because my heart rate was through the roof, because my muscles were tense. It was as if I was fighting a stressful experience on my couch. So that was a a really big moment for me. And again, highlighting um, the importance of integrating the body, of actually teaching your nervous system how to embody that peaceful state so that then over time, your thoughts can begin to calm down. You actually can begin to then have that lived experience um, of that peaceful moment. So I think so many of us, we maybe have come to the awareness that thoughts are powerful and we've lived that experience of, oh, if I think this upsetting thought enough, I become upset. And we don't understand that our body is doing just as much communicating and we're backing ourselves into a corner trying to be peaceful when our body is screaming to our mind to get the hell out of this unsafe situation. Mm, That's so interesting when you like you put it like that with the like the connection and the the two way system between your your mind and your body and your body and your mind. And, you know, even if your mind is good, but there's something wrong that's happening in your body, your body's going to alert your mind and you're going to be 
like in this cycle. It's so interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm also curious to ask you as well as like, with this being said, like, what do you think is like the best, um, <laughs> what do you think is like the best like habit or tool someone can use to like, uh, I don't know if the right word is calm down their mind. Like, is it is it meditation? Is it breath work? Is it everything? It does it depend does it depend on the person? Like, what do you think is like the most powerful like habit that someone can right. use for this? Right. And it's so ultimately, you'll always hear me reference the starting point for any change in consciousness, um, and that kind of piggybacks on um, to go in a bit more depth this in the in the context of health anxiety. When we're mm. stuck kind of in that anxious thinking of our health anxiety, use as an example, right? I'm always scanning my body for the symptoms. Like, could I have this, you know, new diagnosis? That's a form of, of thinking. Um, that's a, mm. an overanalyzing type of using my thinking mind. That's different than a state of being conscious. Conscious is learning how to be, I'm going to just throw out the cliche, right? The sky that the clouds are traveling on, the river that the, the or the ocean that the waves are going, right? Learning how to be the observer of those thoughts. The thoughts that absolutely can shift into that hyper analysis and in the terms of, we were talking about um, social anxiety, right? Always hyper vigilant. Maybe it's not inside. Maybe I'm not looking for, right, the symptom in, of the stomach cancer, like my mom. Maybe I'm scanning the environment for the threat outside of me. I just want to be clear, that's different. That's not conscious. That's I'm caught in a loop of my thinking mind. So to become conscious means to say, oh, here's here's a thought of anxiety. Oh, I that gurgle in my stomach, right? And I'm starting to go down that path of what could that be? From that conscious state, once I have that distance to say, oh, my mind is overactive in this moment, I can then make a decision to put my attention anywhere else that I choose. So Consciousness allows me not only to create that separation between all of the habitual patterns like we've been talking about that are coloring my embodied experience, it allows me then to start to show up and say, I'm not going to choose to do what I always have done in this moment. I'm going to choose to do something different. And then we do have at our disposal all of the other tools that you spoke of. And consciousness, just to be clear, can be built, doesn't necessarily have to be built in a sitting meditation practice like most of us, I think, traditionally think of. And for many of us, myself included, that's overwhelming to hit stop, to sit in silence with my own thoughts, mine at one time, which were completely overwhelming. That's not where I began to practice consciousness. For me, I began to carve out the intention to be conscious in my day to day, when I was taking a walk in the neighborhood, just being conscious in that moment meant being aware of the thoughts in my mind, redirecting my attention to my physical body, right? Feeling my muscles walk the environment or the neighborhood, feeling the sun on my skin, right? That's a state of consciousness where I'm able to assess the internal state of my environment, the external state of my of my world, of my environment, and I'm able to then begin to make new choices, which might mean breath work, which might mean learning how to regulate my nervous system, developing some emotional coping tools, and really the list goes on. But none of that is possible if I'm not first conscious to what's there. And again, to be clear, consciousness mm. is different than that hypervigilant, ruminative, over and analyzing type of thinking that comes with any version of the anxiety, the social, the health, and any other type of anxiety, again, that comes from an overactive nervous system. Mm. That's a, that's very well said. And, uh, you know, this is why I like, like going for walks like so mm -hmm. much, you know, like leaving, uh, 
leaving my phone behind, going for a walk. And, and, and there's even smaller examples of that too. Like I think in, in your book, the first book, you talk about how uh, I think she was a client of yours. Um, she really started her healing journey and, and changing her life with simply just like waking up and like getting a glass of like lemon lemon and just like putting that water and that almost that moment of mindfulness of conscious awareness that being like the kickstart to like so many other things i'm curious like are you able to share like that's that story i think it's like a very like very simple powerful one for people yeah absolutely i mean i think the story you're referencing is the glass of water promise made every day and what's what is kind of foundational or what what the function of, of that is because it doesn't matter what the promise is. If it's a glass of water, if it's flossing your teeth, if it's, you know, one moment of just quiet time before you run out the door where you literally set your phone for 60 seconds and just do some deep breathing, it matters less about the what you're choosing to do. And two aspects matter more, which is A, the conscious intention that you're setting to do something which, you know, is is new and you're going to be aware of yourself while you're doing it. So you're already kind of removing, right, yourself from that autopilot. And then two, chances are this might be one of the few times where you're showing alignment between what you intend to do or wish to do for yourself and what you're actually doing. Because again, by the time we're adults, our autopilot is strong. We set many intentions, many new habits we want to create for ourselves, And that pull to the familiar is so strong that before maybe it's days, weeks, months, we're right back in those old habits because again, they signal to our unconscious or our subconscious that they're actually safer than this new world. So the more of that mismatch, the less we trust ourselves. The more we just kind of roll our eyes, like, yeah, sure, Nicole, you're going to do this new thing. So matters <laughs> less the promise, matters most that we're keeping that promise small because we do want to be aware that the more out of our familiar we go, the more challenging it's going to be that subconscious that is thinking it's getting more and more dangerous. And I'm speaking to the very large majority of us, again, myself included, that when we get to a place where we discover or decide we want our life to change, it's so easy to be like, okay, well, tomorrow my life is going to look different from top to bottom, right? I'm going to do everything completely different because my idea is that'll get me to this healthy, healed, done place sooner. That likely isn't going to happen because what will more likely happen in the interim is you will overwhelm the crap out of your subconscious mind who's going to be so fearful of this new unknown territory that your resistance is going to be so strong and you're going to be back right to those old habit. So again, promise of what, whether it's water, flossing, journaling, five deep belly breaths, whatever it is for you, what matters most is the conscious intention that you're going to actualize, being conscious to make that choice to do that new thing. And then the alignment that you're beginning to rebuild and the confidence that you'll rebuild over time as a result of that. And then you can kind of like the habit stacking approach once mm. things become a consistent part of your day. So now more often than not, you do do those five daily belly breaths each and every day. Maybe every couple of days you don't, but you have some confidence because you know you're going to return to it maybe three days from now. And you have that. And now maybe you want to expand that habit into something, maybe build on more time you're breathing or maybe build on another habit because what's happening now is you're starting to feel more and more confident. Yeah, you know mm -hmm. what? I can keep moving in this unknown, unfamiliar, even challenging direction, and I can do so confidently. Mm. I really like that approach because it, it like really goes to show you that like as a human being, like you are not a, a machine. You are more or less like 
I don't like living with like an organism. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's kind of like funny to look at it from that perspective, yeah. but like we are literally an organism, uh-huh. you know, and like, it's a complicated uh, <laughs> organism that it's got all these different moving parts and things and ways that this can affect that. And this we're like really taking it like step by step and almost like, uh, you know, like negotiating with yourself or like really working on like building a relationship with yourself and, and the different parts of our mind and our body and our, our spiritual side too. I think that's like a great way to like look at it because uh, it becomes more manageable rather than being like, I'm a robot. I'm going to like wake up at 4 AM. And, and sometimes you, you got to do those and, and do one, two, three. But I looking at that is, is much more manageable. I think yeah, for sure. I um, 100. And I love thinking about it kind of in, I often use like language, like we're co-creating this experience with this physical body. Cause again, I, I do think that a large majority of us are, whether or not we have the language to define who or what we really are, you know, in our essence and our soul, if we even like to use that word or the energetic being, I think most of us are like, have at least a, a, a curiosity around it, possibly being a something else. And so the reality of it is we're living with our body, which has great impact on how we're going about and navigating our experiences, though it doesn't, as we once believed, it isn't the soul determinant. For so long, we gave you know our, our physical body down to our genetics, soul power, um, and mm. now we really truly understand that that plays a role, but so do the choices and the environments that those choices are creating or had been created around us. Um, that also plays a role, and that's where we can become empowered because that old way of thinking is really disempowered. If you really truly believe that there's no opportunity, that things are inevitable, it really does become hopeless. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, and, um, you know, I mean, not really to switch gears, but I think that within like this, this conversation of like your authentic self, I think that really like, what is one of the most important, uh, you know, testers, like a test really of that is like being in a relationship with someone, you know, and, uh, (laughs) right. And, uh, you know, that's like a, that's like a whole topic, but I think it's important to touch on because, um, you know, like I, and, you know, I face my own problems in relationships, but, you know, I find that today, a lot of the conversation is, you know, people will often, if it's a guy, uh, you know, from a male perspective, looking at a girl, you know, let's say they'll be in this relationship, uh, you know, things will be quote unquote, like toxic, uh, things will end, it'll be kind of traumatic. And then the guy says, Oh, well, you know, all girls are this way, you know, and they sort of create a worldview. The same thing happens with women. Oh, all men are this way, you know? So I think that relationships are like a huge, uh, tester of, of all this stuff, you know, and it's, it's interesting to see how they can kind of connect with each other. I'm, I'm curious to ask you, like, um, what, what are, what are, I don't know, like, what are like steps or like, what are guidelines or what are the things that you thinking about when trying to be like in a conscious relationship with someone in general? You know, it's a I, 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 I giggled, um, when you were even <laughs> introing the concept, um, of relationship because we are, you know, maybe some listeners have heard, um, this kind of language used were interpersonal creatures or relational beings or wired to connect. Really simply all that means is we are as part of a relationship. As a human developing infant, we cannot care for ourselves on our own. So mm-hmm. even the self who we believe us to be actually was defined and created 
through a relationship with at least one other person, that primary, mm. whoever it was that was responsible for meeting whatever version of the needs that they were able to somewhat, or maybe not at all, meet who we even come to believe us to be, ourselves to be. There's a whole section of the workbook around beliefs in general was created in relationship with someone else, in the space that they mm. created and the safety or lack thereof that allowed us to even be who we are authentically or to more often than not, what happens is to begin to modify who we are. So those examples that you're beautifully given that, you know, often we become more conscious of later in life when we develop romantic partnerships. And then we do make these sweeping generalizations, in my opinion, as our best attempt at making sense of the world so we can keep ourselves safe. Because if I can avoid, right, this type of person, then I avoid this type of pain. When in reality, the self that we're even showing up in this relationship to be a part of was impacted by those first very, very, very early relationships. So when we're talking mm. or exploring about being a conscious participant, and this includes not even just romantic relationships, our friendships, our, our professional colleagues, our somewhat acquaintances that we just like happen to have to interact with in our social communities, whatever they might be, how we relate to others, even more so how we relate to ourselves. Like I was saying, that sense of self has been impacted by how we relate it to those first early ever important individuals. So to be conscious mm. in a relationship, again, means to be conscious like we've been talking about. And in terms of relationships, exploring the patterns, the dynamics, how are we showing up? Do we just express ourselves freely and safely and share what's on our mind and, you know, share our feelings when we're upset and open ourselves up to the support, which is one of the major functions, co-regulation in terms of a neuroscience perspective of our relationships are, do we filter our truth? Do we not share things? Do we just yes the person because we're so afraid of saying no or our true self that they might leave us and all of the different versions of adaptations that most of us are living in our relationship. So again, as always, being conscious to the patterns that we've been carrying with us likely over time through these relationships when those patterns were at one time our best and only ability to adapt in an environment that we couldn't change, now becoming a conscious participant, right? Seeing the areas where we might want to do things differently or you know what, we might want to practice sharing more authentically who we are, what we think, and how we feel, allowing ourselves to be supported by the relationships around us. Hmm. That's so interesting. So, you know, really what you're saying is like the the first relationship, I guess, like with our mom, you know, or, or whoever else in our family, like those first relationships and really every relationship will shape how you not only deal with yourself, but also in every relationship you have after that point. Um, I'm curious to ask you, like, what would be your advice to someone who, you know, like, let's say had a nasty breakup, had a, you know, toxic relationship, and they obviously don't want to bring that into their their newest, uh, you know, relationship with, with that person. I'm curious to ask you, like, what is there, is there, you know, advice that you could give um, in terms of that, of like, how do you not let past uh, past the relationship dynamics influence the current one. Yeah, absolutely. The first step, <laughs> um, I think, always is to allow ourselves to be with however it is that we feel about that hurt, that pain. Understanding that for some of us, what it might be bringing up, this really devastating toxic breakup, might be about this, you know, loss of this current relationship. It might also be about 
all of the other different ways we felt we've lost, right? A, a parent figure, an emotional support, p- needs that weren't even, you know, available to us to be met because we didn't have the resources or whatever it is. So understanding that the feelings that we're having are real, um, even if they are, you know, connected to what's happening or from this past time that's now coloring what's happening, we still need to allow them to be. And I'm saying this because so many of us, we try to push ourselves through them. Again, we weren't modeled a way to deal with these type of feelings. So we distract ourselves, we avoid them, we minimize them, we do all of the different things to push them down and make them more tolerable, though they don't go anywhere. So giving, right, the whatever it is that you feel and allowing yourself to non-judgmentally feel whatever it is, right? Sometimes we judge ourselves if we feel angry or resentful because we're just supposed to just feel sad. Maybe we feel all different types of things for this one person or around this one experience. So allowing ourselves to be with what's there. And then in terms of moving forward into another relationship, getting really clear with ourselves in terms of shifts and changes we can make to create safety around us, which might mean advocating for ourselves, creating boundaries, right? Beginning to speak up when limits are beginning to be crossed, essentially really getting honest and exploring, not to say that we caused abusive toxicity or behaviors that harm us. However, right along the way, we might have been able to create space or distance or advocate for ourselves by maybe even removing ourselves from that experience to empower ourselves to create that change because more often than not and I've done this myself is we point the finger at the other person and we then task ourselves with just not picking the next toxic person and we're disempowering ourselves because we can't mm-hmm. control what someone else is going to do how they're going to show up how they were raised and modeled to be in a relationship but what we what we can do is get really clear on the limits we have so that as we begin to start dating someone new and you know beginning to feel like you know this doesn't feel good this isn't working i need a little more space over here i need to express this we can get more confident of putting those boundaries up so then it matters less of what they're doing or how they're going to react because I'm creating safety for myself. So if they don't like it or if it's not in alignment with them, I can create more safety by moving away from that relationship. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for, you know, saying all this. I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, hard parts about life in general, like, oh, what are you going to eat your health? <laughs> and I especially think like that relationships and, and people dealing with relationships in 2022, it's, it's definitely very challenging, you know? So uh, I think a lot of people need this advice and, and I appreciate it, um, you know, for giving it. Um, Nicole, I, I really appreciate you, you coming on the show. Um, I can't wait for people to check out your, your workbook, um, I believe it's on your website, theholisticpsychologist.com. We'll have links down below. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious to ask you, like, why did you decide to like create this workbook and, and put it out in the world and, and what can people hope to, to, to do and how to use this tool? I appreciate um, your support of the new workbook, Mark, um, and putting all the links below, et cetera. Um, so for me, well, I was really intentional in terms of writing how to do the work and making sure that it, you know, was practical um, in so much as each chapter, right, had journaling prompts, different tools, techniques, ways to translate the ideas of the chapter into the embodiment of changing, of using that tool, that resource to create change. Um, you know, I understood that a lot of people were 
really wanting kind of a, a top to bottom roadmap of holistic healing in general. So the idea of a workbook was has been percolating kind of probably since I began to write how to do the work mm. um, with it as an opportunity to give people because I understand that people heal differently in different environments at different paces. And a lot of us like, you know, the idea of living with this guidebook that we can kind of take and and work through at your own pace. So for me, having then the opportunity to create that um, and being given that opportunity to put it out in the actual form of a workbook, I was really, really grateful. And I set it up just like I was describing earlier as really a journey um, from mm-hmm. starting with the body and really reconnecting with each of your readers, individual bodies and learning how to attune to your body with a lot of work around nervous system and those different states of trauma-based activation that we've been kind of peppering throughout this. And of course, tools to begin to heal our nervous system now that we all understand how important of a role that is. Um, And then we progress into the mind um, and our emotions and all of our, you know, um, our inner child and this inner child wounding and the deep abandonment that a lot of us feel that impacts relationships apply in here, how we're emotionally showing up, um, navigating the world around us. And then, of course, it culminates with peeling back the onion of those layers allows us to then begin to reconnect with our authentic self, which houses that intuition and that passion and the purpose and that creativity. And in my opinion, the reason why, and we all have one as individuals, the reason why we're each here. So my hope is that uh, the workbook really does offer those that that are interested into that comprehensive guidebook to help them navigate their own journey to finding their way back home. That's awesome. It it almost kind of reminds me of like a Remember like those books a long time ago where it was like, choose your own adventure. Yeah. <laughs> you go to this page number. Yep. It's almost like that, much. Mm-hmm. but a more interactive one, but for yourself. Yes. So there yes. you go. I can't wait to check it out. I'm, I'm super excited. Um, Dr. Nicole, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I hope everyone out there checks out your workbooks. And um, yeah, this was awesome. This has been your host, Mark Metry.